0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the writer Anne Seba, whose new book is called Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy, and it revisits the story, which will be familiar I'm sure to many listeners, of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Ethel was the first woman in American history to be put to death for crime other than murder, in this case spying for the Soviet Union. Anne, welcome. Can I Start by asking you what put you onto this subject. What made you think, look, this piece of relatively ancient history, there's more there. It it needs to be retold. It needs to be revisited.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's always hard to remember the moment when you first thought, this is what I have to write about. And as a biographer, I would say that you do have to be fairly obsessed. I take about five years over a book. So it's really no good doing something that someone else has suggested to you. And I do actually remember the moment when I first came across the Rosenberg story. I was a young mother in new york and i came across the novel by e.l doctorow it's a long time ago 1978 called the book of daniel and something planted a seed at that point i had a son and then a daughter two babies and in the fictionalized version of the story doctor takes a, a son and a daughter of ethel rosenberg called isaacson in in the book So it has a long trajectory, but the precise moment was that my previous book was about women in wartime Paris, and the publishers were nice enough to say to me after that book, well, Anne, there are lots of spies in that book. There must be a spy you can extract and write a separate biography of. And I thought about it, and there really weren't, because most of the fascinating ones already had their own biographies. And then I suddenly remembered... Ethel Rosenberg, who was always accused of being a spy. They were referred to as the Rosenbergs, as if they were a block. I thought probably she should be um, removed from her husband, unwrapped, if you like, extrapolated. And I also thought that it was coming up to the 70th anniversary. And although there's no magic about a peg, the reason that the 70th anniversary seemed to me relevant is first of all, there are still people alive, and I was lucky enough to interview her sons and the child psychologist who had looked after um, Michael the son, the older son and knew Ethel and and other people a woman who'd been in prison with ethel so so that was important that you can still catch people, and people's memories are still focused on that issue but also many people like me I was born at the end of 1951 early early 52 really have grown up with this story and after 70 years I thought that it would be time to retell this story that tempers would have calmed and that actually it was possible to revisit this and look at Ethel's role and really to extrapolate her from this block called The
0: Rosenbergs, Those Spies. Well, it, I mean, that's looking at it at different times, I mean, there's a sense, which seems to me to pass on the book, that the way what they were doing looked in 1943 is hugely different to how it looked in 1953 and is in turn very different now, isn't it? Our perspectives on their espionage have shifted, haven't they?
1: Well, absolutely. So I start or at least I start with Ethel's birth in 1915. So she grew up in the Depression and lived a life of great poverty on the Lower East Side. And all of that is terribly important in turning her into the person that she became. She wanted to go to college, but there was no money in the family. And it was just at a time when women were starting to have university education. So she had to go out to work. She worked for a packing company. She got involved in a strike. So that was really her political education and it was very important because she was one of those who her fellow workers thought was timid but actually during the strike she found herself and although she was dismissed for about six months and, and lost money uh, the newly formed national labour relations board at the end of this decided that she was justified and and that um there should be better working conditions for the staff and she had back pay so she won this battle and that was a very key moment. But the other key moment, of course, is 1936, because that's when she meets Julius Rosenberg. And that's when they probably joined the Communist Party. And so many people joined the Communist Party in 1936, this key year when Hitler marched into the Rhineland and nobody stopped him, although he overturned treaty regulations when Many of the Rosenberg friends went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War against Franco and and the nationalists, and in France as a popular front government. So 1936 was really a year when becoming a communist made sense, really. And although now we can see communism as a discredited philosophy, and it was a mirage, for idealists like Ethel and Julius, the romance of communism if you like makes absolute sense you're completely right that their uh, the reputation moved uh, you know the ebb and flow of what it meant to be a communist or to spy for russia just in brief in 1939 of course it was awkward to be a communist because there was the nazi soviet pact but ethel and julius remained steadfast communists then in 1941 first of all Hitler marches into Russia, so of course Russia becomes an ally, and then Pearl Harbor and America joins the war. So then it's comfortable to be helping Russia. Russia is an ally, and the American government did everything to change people's opinions. There were rallies, there were films trying to persuade Americans who hitherto had been told what a dreadful place Russia was, that actually Americans should understand communism. So at that point, or shortly after, probably in 1942, at a pro-Soviet rally, Julius offers his services to the Russians. He's desperate to help. He felt that if Russia was an American ally, they should be offered every piece of help they could be. And actually, when they're arrested in 1950, the charges relate to wartime help or spying for the Russians. But you're you're totally right. The attitude changed dramatically almost the minute World War II was over. Suddenly the Cold War between America and Russia seems to take over. And there's this huge fear that Russia is now the enemy again. Russia explodes an atomic bomb. And there's fear of how on earth did did Russia get hold of a bomb unless Americans have, have helped china becomes communist as well so this fear is built on by unscrupulous american politicians and the era of the cold war uh, is fraught with fear of who are the communists in american society who have helped russia and by the time ethel and julius face their trial in 1950 america is embroiled in the korean war between the north and the south And there is a belief that perhaps North Korea wouldn't have been so emboldened if the communists in Russia and China had not been given help. So a dramatic existential fear that communists in America are undermining the basic values of American society. And this is sort of strengthened by this idea, we lost our brave kids in World War II what did we fight World War II for if it wasn't democracy and freedom? So all of that feeds into this very dramatic and sudden change of
0: attitudes towards communism. Let's go back for a moment to Ethel herself. You know, you say she's born into poverty. I mean, what was the character of her? What was the making of her? Because you, she had this absolutely ghastly mother. And that obviously has a, you know, it's a family drama, this, as well as an ideological one. And I'd I'd like to give me a sense of the, the roots of that.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for saying that, because I see it as a sort of dysfunctional family drama on one side of, of Shakespearean tragedy, really, as the story gets going, you see that. And at the other side, a redemptive family for the two boys who are orphaned. And in between this gripping trial, a sort of filling in the sandwich. But to go back to the dysfunctional family... Ethel was born a green glass. Her father came from Minsk. He was not especially successful. He remained a machinist all his life. And they lived in a tenement building. You have to see a tenement to understand the appalling poverty. There were only windows in the front and the back. If you didn't have a room with a window, you could be stuck in the middle of this sort of damp and fetid corridor, with no WC in your flat, no place to have a bath. You had to go to a bathhouse. So there really wasn't much money, but the transformation for Ethel came with her amazing school, Seward Park High School, which nurtured a love of theater and drama. It had an Olympic-sized swimming pool, an Olympic-sized library. And you can absolutely understand going there, how that must have transformed Ethel's hopes for the future but her mother Tessie as you say the mother from hell why was she well she was to say inarticulate I mean she spoke Yiddish but but she was illiterate in English so Ethel translated for her she had an old-fashioned belief which was probably based on jealousy that girls shouldn't be educated what on earth was all this fancy business with Ethel singing Italian arias, because when she went to school, she learnt European classical music, she sang, she loved acting. As far as her mother was concerned, that was a complete waste of time. Girls were meant to find a nice Jewish husband, settle down, and have the sort of life that she, Tessie, had had. Now, all of this was slightly complicated by the fact that Ethel was the brightest of her three children. There were four in all one was an older stepbrother. And Ethel clearly outshone her siblings and again tessie disapproved of that tessie poured all her love into the youngest child david it's fair to say that ethel loved david too he was seven years younger than her he came after a number of miscarriages and he was the sort of chubby cheeked curly haired not terribly bright baby that the whole family spoilt rotten and one of the reasons why Ethel had to go out to work was because David, or Little Doovy, as he was referred to, was still at school. Now, I mentioned this theater at the school. Ethel really loved acting. She was known as the class actress. And even though she had to go out to work, she continued with Amdram. And here's something I found out she had a natural soprano voice. So she took herself off to audition not just for any old choir, but the best choir in Manhattan at Carnegie Hall, the Schola Cantorum. And of course, she failed her audition the first time around because she hadn't been taught, she didn't know how to do sight singing. But such an insight into her determination, because it was the Depression, people were throwing out furniture, she found an old piano that somebody didn't want, took it back for the price of carting it to her bedroom, taught herself sight singing, went back to Carnegie Hall, auditioned a second time, having taught herself how to sight sing, and was accepted at 19, probably the youngest girl to sing with Schola Cantorum. She seems only to have sung with them for a year. Why? I think because they were travelling and she couldn't afford to tour. She needed to stay at home and work for the packing company and earned money and gave her mother most of her wages so that's really ethel's childhood and adolescence but uh, she's singing at a fundraising gala in december 1939 and she meets julius and i think it was a transformative meeting because here was a man two and three quarter years younger than her who gave her such confidence who admired her who really worshipped her And I think this feeling of being loved for herself and for her talents was really important to Ethel. I think it was very physical as well. I think they just completely fell in love with each other. And Ethel then had to help Julius, who was a college graduate, pass his exams. He needed a bit of encouragement and she helped him by typing up his notes, this famous typewriter that played such a role later on, made its first appearance here. and
0: It's the same self-same typewriter. Of course mm-hmm. it is. Right.
1: Because Ethel's sister, Ethel's sister-in-law, was aware that Ethel typed up Julius's notes, and that's why the story that she subsequently invented at the trial, the story that sent Ethel to her death, made sense because she knew that Ethel was good at typing and often helped Julius with his exams and then with formal letters. The fact that Julius was a college graduate was also very important. A big motivational factor in Ethel's life was escaping this birth family. And by marrying Julius Rosenberg, she felt she had only gone up a notch, but a notch in intellectual achievement. And that notch was very important in building on the jealousy between her brother David and Ruth. In both cases... It's Ruth, which
0: says David's wife.
1: Ruth is David's wife, also childhood sweetheart. And in both cases, Ruth and Ethel are the clever ones. But you see this jealousy on Ruth's part. Why has Ethel got a husband who's a college graduate? Why does Ethel sing Italian arias? And this sort of jealousy that she believed that Julius and Ethel's children would be cleverer than any children she and David had uh, is one of the things that I discovered in the letters. The letters between Ruth and David that are actually in Boston University and, and which the FBI confiscated really opened a window to me of this corrosive jealousy that was building at an early stage between little dovey now David married to Ruth, and Ethel and Julius, and that of course played out with fatal consequences.
0: Now the business of her marriage to Julius, you know, it was as you say, it was this love match, it was extraordinary, you know, it was a meeting of intellectual equals in some sense, but it seems to have, you know, there's a kind of pivot there isn't there, because as you say, You know, the adolescent Ethel, she's ambitious for herself. She wants to sing. She wants, you know, she works. She has serious ideological convictions. I mean, she may or may not at this stage be a communist, but she's firmly kind of on the socialistic end of of her ideas. And then when she's married, becomes devoted, almost obsessed, with the idea of being sort of the perfect American housewife. You know, she gives up work. She obsesses on getting motherhood right. And she sort of does try and become a little wife and mother, doesn't she?
1: So interesting. Yes, I'm really glad you focused on that because it does need some understanding. When Julius leaves college and he can't easily get a job, he studied engineering. So they decide to go to Washington. That government is more responsive to Jewish graduates from CCNY rather than private commercial companies. And they both take the civil service exams, but Ethel passes first. So they go to Washington and Ethel is the breadwinner and Julius sort of scrabbles around and does some freelancing. And as soon as he gets a job, Ethel gives up even though she had been the breadwinner so you're right to say she she totally pivots and tries to become the perfect housewife that uh, is expected of women of that era but it doesn't quite work out like that for her I think she's knocked off course by a number of things first of all she has quite painful curvature of the spine scoliosis and whenever that flares up and it flares up after the birth of their first child in 1943, Michael, and although they have no money, they somehow have to get help because Ethel can't look after him herself. And you know, anyone who's had a, a first baby and you don't know what you're doing and he's awake all night and he's sick and often has problems. I have enormous sympathy for the situation she found herself in. But this, too, is part of Ethel's character. She clearly focuses on doing one thing at a time to the best she can. And then she has a second child in 1947. But she goes off to mothering classes. And again, she doesn't just go to any old mothering classes or ask a neighbor in in the block where they live to help, which most people might do. She finds a Viennese emigre, Edith Buxbaum, and goes off and, and has serious classes in how to be a better mother. She subscribes to Parents Magazine, and their friends who come notice that she is absolutely obsessed by trying to do the right thing. I think it's because Michael was a challenging child. And also, it's because deep rooted in her is this desire to be a better mother than Tessie had been to her. I think that was such a guiding principle at all times to get away from what the Green Glass family represented. And she's absolutely determined to give Michael and Robbie everything she can. She enrols for music lessons so that she can teach them music. And interestingly, they both have a, a musical vein in them still today, so they remember all of that. But none of it is enough, and eventually she has to see a child psychologist, actually she was then, the wonderful Dr Elizabeth Phillips, who is still alive at nearly 100 and who I flew to California to see, and who really gave me insight into Ethel's problems, and who said the desperately sad thing is that Ethel was on the verge of getting it right. You know, she just was giving in too much to this demanding, challenging, clever child, but she was almost there.
0: Now, How serious was Ethel's communism, her ideological commitment? to communism, because it feels like it comes in and out of, you know, a sort of radio signal comes in and out during things. as you say, she becomes deeply interested in psychiatry, which of course is a bourgeois distraction from the collective struggle and so forth, and you know, you say at various points, they couldn't be worrying about ideology or communism or the tanks going into Hungary or whatever it was, well obviously they couldn't worry about the tanks going into Hungary, because by that stage (laughs) they were in Sing Sing, but They couldn't follow all this because they were so concerned with making a living, with making shift, with parenthood, with all that other stuff. I mean, was it a sort of core of her character or was it something that came and went?
1: Well, I think you've absolutely described it I'm not sure I could do it better. I think they never wavered in their belief in communism. Everyone I've spoken to and everyone who has written about it says that they believed in communism. They believed in this... Idealism and a better future. But to an extent, it was when it suited them. Julius was looking at a scheme to buy houses. I mean, that's a materialistic aspect that no one would expect of a good communist. As you say, Ethel consulted psychiatrists to help her they were married in a synagogue to please the families which is not a particularly relevant aspect of life for communists to to be involved in religion so i don't think it came and went i think it was there the whole time but i don't think it was the focus of her life i think the focus of her life was being a loyal wife and a good mother. And for Julius, you know, he struggled to make a living. They, their problems really were how to make a go of the small centre that became their life.
0: Well, to start with Julius and the spy, because Julius, we know, was not only a communist. He was a spy, and that's now known beyond any doubt, isn't it? Yes. Um, you describe his, his starting to get involved in espionage and his relationship with his Russian handler... I mean, it's not like he was seduced into it. He was desperate to get somebody to listen to him, to take his information. I mean, there's almost a description of him parting from I think his name's Felixov, one of his one of his early handlers who gets repatriated to the Soviet Union. And Julius is like a sort of disappointed teenage lover. Yes.
1: He was, of course, very young. Uh, that's not to make excuses, it's just to put it in context. But you're absolutely right, and many of the Venona cables, which have been transcribed now, or they were made public in 1995, which should explain
0: to listeners who haven't read the thing. What the Venona cables you refer to? What there?
1: So the Venona cables, which were known at the time of their trial, Venona was just a name plucked out of anywhere; it doesn't mean anything. Were the transcriptions of thousands of cables between Moscow between the KGB and New York, which revealed beyond any doubt that Julius was a spy, a spy recruiter who was involved in bringing all his friends whom he knew from City College to give any information, to film information and to pass it on. And you're right, at one point, his handler, Feklisov, has to take him out for dinner and tell him that he's returning to Russia. And Julius is devastated about this. In fact, Julius faces a couple of loyalty hearings. It was not illegal to be a communist, but nonetheless, if you worked in army positions as Julius did, you if you were suspected of being a communist, you could be brought up before a tribunal for loyalty and the first one julius got off but the second one in 1945 he didn't and he lost his job and the russians at that point clearly wanted him to lie low they thought he was a danger there were other factors which went into that decision too and what you see in the venona cables is Julius's desperate unhappiness at not being allowed to work. And, uh, you know, they also were worried that he had. Too much on that his health was not in great shape he had asthma poor eyesight and a number of of other things probably to do with poverty and poor diet he needed iron injections so you know they thought this was all too much for him although he was begging for more so he was laid off according to these cables by 1945 and begging for more but but the other thing before we leave the subject of venona that really needs to be explored. So there were 3,000 cables that were decrypted and the rest, by the time the project was ended in 1995, they decided that it was outdated and of no use anymore. So they weren't going to translate or decrypt any more cables. And of these 3,000, 19 refer to Julius and Ethel, only two refer to Ethel and only one of them mentions Ethel by name and she has no code name whereas julius does he's either called liberal or antenna both david greenglass and his wife ruth have code names ethel has none so i think nobody accuses ethel of working directly with the kgb there simply is not evidence but the ambiguity arises or if you like the degree of her complicity I don't believe it was criminal complicity, but I do believe in any close marriage. Of course, Ethel knew, and I believe she probably approved of what Julius was doing. I don't believe that that is active spying. It says that Ethel does not work. And this phrase does not work is argued over. The people, the two men who were responsible for decrypting Venona, Bob Lamphere and Meredith Gardner, both added a memo to say that this means Ethel is not involved in spying. I mean, it also means she didn't go out to work. But the key thing is that Ethel knew, but she was not involved in spying. And actually, perhaps this is the moment to say that Lamphere and Gardner, when they heard that Ethel was due to be executed were absolutely appalled. You know, there are many people who believe that because the judge must have known about this secret evidence, it couldn't be revealed at the trial, but how far up it went, nobody really knows what level people knew what was in the Venona cables, but it was known that there was secret information which made clear that Julius was involved. And so there was a belief that the means justified the end and that, you know, OK, so it was a bit barbaric. OK, so it was probably a corrupt trial. I mean, it clearly was a corrupt trial and we can talk about that. But many people believe but they had to be killed because everybody knew that Julius was a
0: spy. Because set in context, as you say, only 19 of these cables deal with Julius. So he obviously wasn't a very important spy or at least on the face of the evidence, say he wasn't. Now, I don't think we've touched on what David and Ruth, his brother-in-law and sister-in-law. David, from my understanding, he was actually a very low level tech at the Manhattan Project, wasn't he? And Julius's access to information was, was nothing to do with the nuclear secrets, because I know that the, the sort of folk memory of this is that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg sold the atomic bomb to Russia.
1: Yes, really important distinction. The word you left out is they were often accused of selling the secret of the atomic bomb. And uh, anyone who knows anything about um, the Manhattan Project, which was at Los Alamos, knows that actually the secret was not uh, what was key. The Russians probably knew how to make the bomb. They codenamed Los Alamos before Julius was involved. It was Project enormous. The secret that they needed was the logistics, how to deliver the bomb. That was the really important thing. So back to what you were asking. So David is sent to work as a lowly machinist in Los Alamos. And Julius probably thinks this is very exciting information. To what extent he passed on anything from David is really in dispute, because that's the key time when Julius was probably laid off by the Russians, if you believe the latest cables. I suppose I should take issue with when you say what Julius passed on was not important. It it was military and industrial, and it was important. He passed on details of a dismantled proximity fuse, which is pretty important, but it was not atomic secrets. And that's what they were accused of in their trial of passing on atomic information. And that's what everybody was so frightened about in America, that once the Russians had access to all this, good, loyal American subjects would be in terror of their lives from Russia having access to the atomic bomb. But by the time of the trial in 1950, none of the actual objects that David alleged he passed on existed. So, for example, if he had been able to draw a lens mold sketch, and that's a big if. David was not a qualified engineer, let alone a nuclear scientist and yet 5 years later at his trial he produced a lens mold sketch so it's a sort of theatrical prop he produced the inaccurately torn asymmetrically torn jello box which the prosecution produced with a great flourish, another theatrical prop. Because, of course, if there had ever been such a prop, and probably it did not come from Julius, it came from another courier called Harry Gold, it would have gone off to Moscow. So it didn't exist. They had to produce a new one. And there's a whole ridiculous scene at the trial where Ruth is cross-questioned
0: about how to make jello. And uh, Just Tell literally... us briefly about this jello box, sorry, because it's kind of fascinating detail. I mean, it's real old school sort of spy stuff that you you <laughs> chop up a jello box in an asymmetric way and then what you meet a courier and Who you've, has each the- got, you've each got half of it. And that proves you're legit. Is that the idea?
1: Well, that was the idea. But the dispute arises as to whether this recognition signal was handed over by Julius in his flat or whether, in fact, if Julius had been stood down, it was all dealt with in Albuquerque, which is near Los Alamos, where Ruth was living at the time, and where she was working with Harry Gold. And, uh, you know, that's not proven either way. But it was produced with a great flourish in the trial. And, you know, Ruth had a laugh telling the prosecution, of course, she knows how to cook jello. She's cooked it all her life. And insight into being a 1950s housewife. I mean, the jello box is very important because somehow it came to symbolize the heart of what it meant to be a good American mother. You would know how to make jello. And the sort of subliminal text here is that they were subverting A good American product that all lovely, wonderful American families used and fed their children every day. How dare they subvert that to help the Soviet Union and give them secrets I mean it has has a real subtext this this American jello box, so artists subsequently have made great play with it, but we can't talk about the trial without mentioning the key piece of evidence. so we know that Ethel supported Julius we know that she loved him. we know that she must have been aware at some level, of what he was doing. But they didn't have an overt act on which to convict her of conspiracy to commit espionage. So here's the key piece of perjury in the trial. David and Ruth concocted a story saying that they had seen Ethel type up the notes that David produced from Los Alamos. And David's grand jury trial, uh, the papers from that were only released recently after David's death, make quite clear that before he concocted this story, he told FBI agents, leave my sister out of it, not just because she's my sister. I swear to you, my sister had nothing to do with this. Ethel is not part of this story. And when he came out of prison in 1960, he said the same thing. He said, I can't remember, honestly, who did the typing. If anyone did it, perhaps it was was my wife, but Ruth was not indicted.
0: So that was part of the... He later goes further, doesn't he? One of the interviews towards the end of his life, he actually says, yeah, basically, I did throw Ethel under a bus because I had to choose her or Ruth.
1: Well, he said, memorably, I sleep with my wife, not my sister. She's the mother of my children. So the implication is that Ruth concocted this story and David, of course, went along with it and he got a, a shorter sentence and Ruth didn't go to prison at all. So that's part of the reason that I talk about a miscarriage of justice. There are other reasons. First of all, the judge in his oral indictment kept talking about he introduced the word treason. Well, they were not being charged for treason. Treason is quite different and requires different pieces of evidence, two witnesses to an overt act. But the judge kept introducing this word and the prosecution kept using it. So the jury really were encouraged to think that they were trying Ethel and Julius for treason, which of course was a much more serious charge. And the judge also indulged in ex parte conversations with the prosecution. It was a three and a half week trial and I mean it is a barbaric corruption of all the best that American justice
0: should stand for. Is there I mean one of the questions that was at issue in the trial was whether Julius and Ethel had been instrumental in recruiting David and Ruth as spies where do you where do you fall on that?
1: I think that's a really really difficult one I think it's perfectly possible. I mean, again, the Venona Cables talk about Ethel and, by the way, her sister-in-law. So Ethel might have been part of that conversation. It might have been a normal thing for Ethel to say, well, why don't you go and ask David himself? The reason I'm doubtful of it is because, as I say, having read these letters in Boston between David and Ruth in Boston archives, it's so clear that they were passionate Marxists, passionate communists, desperately keen and eager to throw away materialism, to bring up their children in this new communist world. I mean, be in no doubt about it, they believed in a communist future almost as passionate, or more passionately than uh, Ethel and Julius at, at this point. So I just don't believe they would have needed any persuasion, but I can't prove conclusively that Ethel didn't say at some point, I'm sure David would be interested. It's possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, we can agree that the trial was, you know, a grotesque miscarriage of justice, that David Greenglass purged himself and all the rest of it, you know, and we can also maybe agree that the death penalty was a monstrous and you know, politically motivated result. But the question of whether or not she was guilty as charged. Now, I'd be remiss if I'd you say your book has received across the board good reviews, but for an outlier. And Oliver Cam filed a minority report in the Times where he said, look, this book ignores evidence that is probative of Ethel's guilt, that she was a spy. She was in it just as much as Julius. And whatever we think about the trial and the sentence, the evidence is there that she did it. How do you respond to that?
1: I've looked at all the evidence and I just don't think it's conclusive. I've talked about Venona. The most recent after that evidence comes from a KGB defector called Vasiliev and I've absorbed Vasiliev's information. It's in my bibliography. So, you know, it's clear that I'm perfectly aware of it what are known as Vasiliev's notebooks are not, for me, reliable. They're unverifiable. They come to us fifth hand because they're based on possible conversations Julius had with a prison informer or other conversations that Julius had, so in English. They're then translated into Russian. Then they're decrypted. Then they have to be um, translated back into English. And Vasiliev was not allowed to take photocopies of this evidence. So it's what he was shown and subsequently wrote, which is why they're referred to as his notebooks. And I appreciate that there is one one reference to Ethel possibly acting as a lookout but it is fifth hand unverifiable and if there was a trial today it would be inadmissible as evidence so uh, you know I'm really not concerned that in any way said that Ethel was not knowledgeable about what her husband was doing I'm quite sure she knew and she probably approved I don't believe that she was involved. And I don't find these binary words, innocent and guilty, very helpful. I'm not trying to relitigate the trial. There are enough people who have done that. I'm simply trying to construct the life of a 1950s woman who was more concerned with being a better mother and a loyal wife and who struggled really to, well, struggled intensely because she had two years in solitary confinement to
0: tell the truth about her involvement. She was steely after the verdict, or at least to the public. Right? You know, she didn't waver. She didn't think, you know, oh, I can maybe dob in Julius. And, and you know, she was absolutely went, we go one, we go all. There was no question of her turning on Julius. There's no question of her sort of trying to, trying to escape. Do you have the sense she died in some sense and went to her death for her beliefs or for her family?
1: Neither, really. I don't think she saw any way out. I don't think she believed that she could blame Julius and somehow live with herself. I don't think there was a guarantee that if she said, I've done nothing but he has, either that she would be believed or that she could be a decent mother to her sons who ultimately would feel that she had sent their father to his death. I think she just could not see any way out that would guarantee a decent life for her and ultimately felt that she had no choice in this. So she might as well go to her death with some dignity and not name names. I mean, that's the key fact. And I know for certain because Julius recruited among his friends. He didn't, I mean, he shouldn't have done, but they were his friends. And so it was a close relationship. And even though Ethel went to the country whenever Julius was there, I just don't think she could live with herself doing
0: that. There was a peculiar thing after the trial and the verdict given and there there is appeals to them. There were these passionate letters that go back and forth between Julius and Ethel but they are sort of a public performance as well, aren't they?
1: Some of them absolutely are, yes. And and you do have to read them carefully because of that. Of, of course they are. And Ethel's been criticised for using a dictionary to try and find a better word. Some of these letters were being sold to raise money for the defence and to pay for the boys' education, so I can't blame them for that. She was an autodidact. She was trying to produce the best letters she could. So I think it just depends how you read, what it's like to be a woman in prison. And I've really tried to concentrate on what, what I would do. And so, yes, some of these letters are clearly written for public consumption, but in between, I think you can see the raw nerve when Ethel's writing to the children, writing to the lawyer some of those
0: moments I find just amazingly powerful I mean what were the considerations because obviously these these letters the the relationship between Ethel and Julius the fact of Ethel's mother all played into the public conversation about you know their impending execution it was a huge thing as you as you say you know the famous line that opens the bell jar is you know that summer that was the summer they executed the Rosenberg it's a huge public deal. Was it a giant PR own goal? I mean, as you, you mentioned that, you know, Hoover said, like, I don't really want it to be executed. And I think the line, somebody saying, she called our bluff.
1: Yes. Was it a giant own goal? Well, to the extent that it's resonated for so long, so violently down the years, you could say so. They could have put them into prison and served long sentences, like, for example, Klaus Fuchs in England was given 14 years, which was the maximum in in Britain at the time. They certainly could have, could have done that. There was a fear that if they did, they'd look soft in the face of communism. But, you know, since you mention the review in The Times, which called it, this is not America's Dreyfus case, I don't believe it was. I never say it was. Of course it wasn't. It's completely different. And any historian knows that too. You know, it's just lazy to compare everything wherever somebody Jewish is involved in a miscarriage of justice to say, oh, this is equivalent to the Dreyfus case. No, it wasn't. But what I do is quote one of the clemency campaigners who made the comparison at the time. I think it's a desperately sad Story, and it could have been avoided by giving them lengthy prison terms.
0: Now, this case does, in some sense, continue because, as I understand it, her grown-up children, their grown-up children, are still working to try and get their mother's name cleared. In some sense, where are sort of where is that campaign, as it were?
1: I think they would like to see Ethel exonerated or pardoned, or the fact that it was a miscarriage of justice. Acknowledged, it has been acknowledged in some quarters. I don't know. I'm I'm not part of that. I don't see my book as a sort of, as I say, I was not trying to rerun the trial. I'm not trying to exonerate Ethel. I think it's much more interesting if you look at this story in all its complexity. And just to say innocent or guilty really doesn't help us understand the atmosphere of the times. And by that, I do mean the fear, the existential fear in America, the fear that Eisenhower felt that he had to show strength in the face of of the very credible communist threat. It would help them. And I absolutely understand that they have dedicated their lives to exonerating Ethel, I think, They may revive it, but I'm not part of that campaign. I don't see my book as as part of a campaign. My book is a biography of an unusual, at some level, extraordinary woman who really found herself in the crosshairs of history and how she tried to deal with it. And it's very easy to criticise it's less easy to try and put yourself in that situation and see, well, what would you have done?
0: And Seba, thank you very much indeed. You were listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you